All right, everybody, it's Thursday, and you know what that means. This week in streaming, my boy Lon Harris is here to break down Disney's blowout quarter. As you know, I made a J trade on Disney. I am very long Disney, and my lord, this was very confirming for me that I am going to be a great public market equities investor. We do a deep dive on all the studios and their streaming services to try and figure out the box office versus day and date, and then we talk about the movie Prey, which is a Predator story that is absolutely fantastic, that was released directly on Hulu. We then go into the DC film strategy, Ezra Miller and the controversies there, and then how maybe WBD, Warner Brothers Discovery, should handle all the mashugana going on at DC. We have a lot of different ideas. Uh, it's a great conversation. And then Molly drops an interview with a company that makes a disappearing tattoo ink. It is going to be a great show. Stick with us. This Week in Startups is brought to you by MicroAcquire the startup acquisition marketplace. Start the right acquisition conversations at your own pace. Get free and instant access to over 100,000 trusted buyers with total anonymity. Say goodbye to brokers and meet your ideal buyer today. Go to try.microacquire.com slash twist. Vanta, compliance and security shouldn't be a deal breaker for startups to win new business. Vanta makes it easy for companies to get a SOC 2 report fast. Twist listeners can get $1,000 off at vanta.com slash twist. And open phone. As a startup founder, a lot of mistakes are easy to roll back, but using your personal cell phone number as your company number isn't one of them. Open phone makes it easy to get business phone numbers for you and your team right on top of your existing devices. Visit openphone.com slash twist to get 20% off your first six months. All right, everybody, it's Thursday, Thursday, and we're having a great week here, bringing in a bunch of heavy hitters to join me while Molly's enjoying her well-earned vacation. It's Thursday, so of course, we'd love to have Lon Harris with us. You know him as the podcast host of Binge Boys, and he's now writing for some more news. You can search for that on YouTube. It's kind of like The Daily Show. Uh, but maybe even for a younger generation. Welcome back to the program, Lon. Hey, everybody. Thanks nice for to see me. you, buddy. Always great to be here. Always, always great to have what you. A, what uh, a fo follow at Lon's on the Twitter, L-O-N-S. He got there early, too. We were we were I having had, fun yeah. on You came Twitter back from South days. by Southwest, I believe. And we're like, yes. everybody's got to try this new thing. They were playing games at South by Southwest. Everybody's like meeting up. And it was like a scavenger hunt thing. Yeah. And I was watching from afar, like, this seems fun. I'd like to try that one day. And then they opened it up for everybody, and I jumped right in. It, it was one of the specific growth techniques for startups for a decade, which was South by Southwest coming, you'll have all these geeks, mm -hmm. launch it, you know, the week before South by, get the viral coefficient going that week, and then Foursquare did it. You know, a bunch of people tried to yeah. do it, but very rarely did it work. Um, yeah, every people year were drunk. you'd go to South by Southwest Tech and there would be like five apps trying to do the Twitter thing of yes. like, get everybody to use it here and then they'll go home and tell all their friends about it. And I, I don't know if it ever worked again. Yeah. Uh, so we've got a great docket today. Uh, Disney earnings came out and that's great for us to talk about because you're so deep in the content side. I'm, I'm deep in the money side and all that comes together on an earnings call. Uh, we have the Prey movie coming out for Hulu, which you and I both saw, and we both have strong feelings about, uh, and a bunch of other scattered news. I am wondering what your thoughts are. I hate to bring up politics and a politics show, but in relation to media, it did seem like putting politics aside that Trump is the rating 
bonanza of all bonanzas in news media and also subscription revenue. Uh, and this goes for both sides, Fox and for MSNBC and everybody in between. When Trump does something or something happens to Trump, as in this case, my Lord, does it take over the media space? I have heard, I've never heard so many newscasters, journalists, pundits speak about so little actual information <laughs> for yeah. so many hours. Yeah, everybody was doing that CNN, like, stay right here. We've got all the latest. They're like, there's nothing else. Nothing else is going to happen. There's literally nothing. For days, maybe weeks. You know, that's the law does not move at the pace of cable news. It, it does not have the story arc required right. to keep people glued to the And I realized you can get basically every single dimension of this story with this uh, seizure or raid or whatever we want to call it. We we're literally have so little information that we've now come down to looking at semantics. Was it a raid? Was it a search? And like that has to be a 10 minute discussion. Then we get to, well, Hillary's emails or this Podesta, or I don't know who, whoever's, you know, had uh, documents. There's another guy who was putting documents in his pants from the National Archive. Right. I mean, there's uh, all you know, kinds of stories. And it's like, there's like, you know, there's like five stories about people stealing confidential information uh, or classified documents. All five of them wind up with people getting, you know, a, I wouldn't say a wrist slap, but you know, essentially a wrist slap. Nobody's doing jail time, basically. But my Lord, what does this say about the media? Is it just because it's August or am I just waking no. up to the fact that the media has literally nothing to say? It's and not only that the media has nothing to say. I think it's that the, the incentive structure for news is not anything other than zero in and obsess about these things that people are fixated on, whether or not that's the most interesting thing or compelling thing or there used to be, it was always a business. And I mean, you could go back to like the Edward R. Murrow, Walter Cronkite days, and there were people looking at the numbers and trying to sell, you know, they had Philip Morris on the phone, like sure. we gotta sell more smokes or whatever. But there was, it was a balance. It was, okay, here's what the news guys wanna do that's important that the public needs to know. And yeah. then here's what the money guys want. And we find a way to like bring those worlds together. If you remember that movie, Good Night and Good Luck, there's yes. a whole segment where Edward Armaro has to do like the cheesy Liberace interview because that pays for uh, the hard hitting investigative stuff. Right. Uh, what we've done is we've lost the hard hitting investigative stuff and we're right. just doing 24 seven Liberace interviews like because the money guys took over and there are yeah. no more Edward Armaros who are looking out for the public right to know. And Trump, well, it always takes me back to you remember private parts? One sure, of the of early course. scenes in Private Parts when Allison Janney or whatever is like, why, why do we even pay this guy? Why we yeah. should just kick him out of the building? And they're like, he, he, he gets crazy ratings because the people who love him, love him. They listen every day. And the people who hate him listen even more than the people who love him because they're so fixated on how much they hate him. And as much as I hate Donald Trump personally, I have to admit that that's true. I, yes. I hate him with a passion and I will listen to things about him in a way that I wouldn't for a Ron DeSantis or a Marco Rubio you can or a Ted be Cruz. Intellectually honest enough to say that like there's a, an element of like, hey, yeah, would love to see this guy finally get his comeuppance for all the horrible stuff he's right. done. And, you he's know, a, and so he's a horrible man, but I think it's impossible to overlook the fact that he is a showman. He's a horrible yes. man in a very compelling entertaining God. way and he's 
funny. I mean, he's not always intentional. He could have been a comedian. He could have been a stand-up. I mean, when he does those rallies, it's one-liners. And I don't think people are writing that for him. I think he just listens to the audience reactions. And when he says a keyword, if if the volume goes up, he just says the same keyword three times. He, and it just, you know, oh, FBI. Okay. Yeah. FB, FBI. And they're like, oh, yeah. Don't we know what's going on with the deep state? Oh, <laughs> he, but he, what I think, I think he's been doing this for decades. He, he has a yes. he has a genuine skill at working a crowd, getting people going. He's Good got that comic timing like a like a showman does. And when you put him next to Joe Biden, like Joe Biden, a much better politician, a much more rational, sane individual. But yes. like can't compete in terms of can't stage compete with presence. that level of timing and shtick reading the audience. No, right. Uh, the interesting thing I think is the third circle, which you bring up, which is, you know, you got the circle of the hard hitting news, uh, team that wants to, you know, do this for the right reasons. And then you got the, the advertising money machine, uh, you know, the corporate interests. And then you also have the audience is another circle. You put those three circles over each other. You kind of get this little Venn diagram. You can start to understand what's going on. Um, I really think people should opt out of watching any cable news. I, I mean, if you put it on for 10 minutes just to catch up then turn it off. Because I think that this is such a major part of the problem today. Uh, you know, and obviously, social media is a nice dystopian dance partner for, for the cable <laughs> news, because they then whip each other into a frenzy. Right, exactly. But there's no new information being gleaned here. And, you know, the, the justice system kind of works its stuff out. But there are a contingent of people who I believe uh, love this. Like, oh, sure. this is and we, we were talking before we got on air here a little bit about this. There are people who this week having Trump reemerge into the headlines where he kind of was dormant, right? Like they weren't covering his, they stopped covering his um, rallies. And they remember they used to always be live with the rallies. Right. So I guess the left didn't want to cover them to give him promotion or there were too many of them. But also at the right, it seems like Fox stopped doing the live coverage of them too. Yeah, I, I mean, I can't, I'm not an expert on this specific stuff and I don't spend that much time on the right wing web, but like there definitely seemed like there was this moment where like after Twitter banned him and he was sort of not top of mind every day, even the Republican Party seemed like maybe this is our opportunity to like grow mm -hmm. some of these other people's profiles and maybe start to move on. And I think the base of the Republican Party has now made it absolutely clear that that's not where their heads are at. They're, they're not interested in Ron DeSantis. They're not huh. interested in these new guys. They love who they love. They want Trump back. They think he won last time. They believe he will win again. And like, that's what they want. They're being very clear about what they want. I'm out. It's just not good for mental health to like, you, you, this stuff all because it's the first time it's happening. Oh my God, it's the first raid ever on a president. We can't, the monumentous nature of this. Like I was listening to Fox and they Rachel Maddow. Even, they even broke into his safe. They broke into his safe. I'm like, well, it, that's kind of what happens. That's, yeah, that's the first place they would go. Kind of, the, they work backwards from the safe, don't <laughs> right. they? But Trump knows that. Yeah. And he puts that in his statement. He's like, they even went into my beautiful safe. My beautiful you know, like, safe. Yeah. He front run it. He front right. ran it. He's like, I know what's going to get the most clicks here. The safe, right? Yeah. So now you have like, I think they're all in cahoots. The media, social media companies, everybody. Because you know what's happening next. People are going to be like, you know what? Oh, we got to let Trump back on. It's it, He's got to be able to air his side of this. And, we, you know, all of a sudden the Trump bans are going to lift, you know, two years later. Yeah. And then 
the media cycle starts again. Well, that, that's uh, and, the thing. I mean, they're totally incentivized. Even the people in the media who realize we're opening the door to some very dangerous ideas and political movements, and we may chaos. not be able to put this back in Pandora's box. Yep. Even those people are like the lure of the eyeballs and the money from a return of Trump. It's just too sweet to pass up. He's He's a ratings bonanza, and we've always known it the whole time since before, since 2015, we've been having this conversation. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. They can't do a real credible job of reporting on him because they're so desperate for more of him. I'm 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 opting out. I just, I have to opt out of it because it's just too all-encompassing. I mean, we're not Uh, supposed to watch news 24-7. The old idea was right. Like the, the idea in like the 50s, like you wake up and you get the paper and you spend 30 minutes drinking your coffee. Yep. browsing through and then you're you're on with your day that's the news now it's time to go to work i think that was probably the right idea Microacquire is a startup acquisition marketplace i've always wondered why this idea did not exist and now it exists it cuts out everyone in the middle that means they help startups get acquired directly and efficiently If you're a founder and you're looking to sell and there's nothing wrong with selling, sometimes you got to secure the bag. Well, Microacquire is free for you. It's free. It's private. And there's nobody in the middle. To date, Microacquire has helped hundreds of startups. Yes, they've helped hundreds of startups get acquired. I kid you not. And they facilitated hundreds of millions of dollars in deal volume. Their platform has over 120,000 buyers who spend $390 a year for access. That's a big number for a subscription, but not if you're an acquirer spending millions to tens of millions to hundreds of millions to billions of dollars buying technology companies. Thousands of startups are currently listed for sale. So if you are a buyer, you're probably missing some great opportunities there. I encourage you to go become a subscriber like I am. Microacquire helps startups find buyers. It's as simple as that. Buyers can browse listings for free. And the platform is totally free for sellers. Sign up for premium for $390 a year to get access to all the deal info at try.microacquire.com slash twist. Once again, try.microacquire.com slash twist. Great job to the Microacquire team. Well, I mean, this is a good jump off to Prey then. This, I thought, was an excellent movie. Prey is a Predator prequel. And it's set in... uh, Early 1700s, 18th century in... Yeah, I guess somewhere in, you know, it's like close enough to modern day Quebec that there are French trappers there. Right. But we had French trappers also in North, in what is the United States now, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's they, somewhere they were, in the northern US, you know, you know. Now, I don't know what this film cost. But one know. of the best sci-fi films I've seen in the last 10 years. I thought it was great. Yeah. Dan Riveting. Trachtenberg directed totally killed it uh he did 10 cloverfield lane dan trachtenberg did 10 cloverfield lane which was Uh really good he's also directed uh he directed that really good wyatt russell episode of black mirror one of the early classic black mirrors i remember he used to do like he was a youtube guy so i remember Uh him from that day he directed this really great portal fan film remember the game portal sure where you had the gun you know he directed a fan film for portal that looked super pro and i remember when that came out everybody was like oh this guy's gonna become like a hollywood guy 
it really is a great path to becoming uh, a director or an actor is just to start on YouTube, but make something high quality, but that's short, right? right. And, and, and it was we in see like that a over familiar, and over had, went very viral because it was like, oh, somebody made a portal. I don't even think he had the rights. I think he just did it. No, I mean, that, that's the great, you know, punk rock thing about this. There, right. Somebody had done actually Predator versus Batman, I remember in the early days. Yes, there, was a, a, there was a Batman short where Joker lures him into the alley and then he's attacked by aliens and predators, I believe. Oh, was that it? It was aliens it versus was, Batman. It was both. It was a, he was it was an alien first and then a predator or something. Yeah, I think they. Had I mean, both in all there. you need is a, a Sith Lord or a Jedi, and you've mm -hmm. got the uh, trifecta there uh, of uh, IP. So I guess yeah. now I wonder who owns the rights to the Predator franchise. If, that, I think that was Fox, so which Disney, is bought by Disney. Disney got, got it. it from Fox when they bought Fox's assets. I think that this is a sleeper. IP. I think there needs to be a Predator anthology series where they do Predators in 90 minute, one hour segments just going to different scenarios. Doesn't even have to be movies because this showed how uh, wonderfully interesting the Predators are. They're, for people who don't understand, I think what I really love about these characters is they are passionate about something. <laughs> yeah. Fighting, They're, hunting. They love, they love hunting, yeah. They like the hunt. And they revel in being injured and getting their asses kicked. That's what they live for. They live to mix it up. And they're singular in that love and joy. And they respect things that are good at fighting. Yeah. And they're not interested in anything that is not a threat. They're, it's a very pure, great premise for me that the species uh, ex exist in this you know, framework. I, I love it. Yeah. I, I, the, the original Predator, one of the great action movies of all time, and one of the great Seminole. action movie concepts. It's just such a simple, clean, compelling story and idea about your following. The, and the, the, it, it would have been an interesting movie if the Predator didn't show up. Like, you, you already had this interesting group of guys, this action story that's ongoing. You don't even need the Predator. It just takes it to mm. the next level. And I think that's what Prey captures so well, is it's also a very compelling story about Naru and her brother and her her desire to be a warrior, even though the tribe's not interested in her journey. And I think it was already a cool movie before the Predator showed up, and that's what's so great. And that you could capture, I think, in an anthology or something, the end of Predator 2. I don't know if you remember Predator 2 that well, with Danny Glover. I do, that was when they were in downtown LA, right? They're, they're in like a dystopian LA in the midst of like a huge cartel war. And that's where the Predator drops in. But the very last scene after Danny Glover has defeated the Predator, a mm. group of Predators lands and they basically like salute him. Like, we respect you. You're a warrior like we are. And he sees uh. like relics, like, and that the Predators have a collection of weapons from human history that they've collected from all the people, including the revolver that we see in Prey is a callback to Predator 2. They have uh. that that gun that she's using that she got from the French guys. Ah, wow, that makes so much sense. So that's what, to me, the promise has always been out there of we're gonna get a series of predators throughout history. That's where they acquired this whole collection of human weapons and we've never, we've never quite seen it. And I think now we're, we're perfectly set up. Now there was a predator movie that had uh, the premise, it had a really good cast too. It, it had uh, Adrian Brody in it. Right, your Predators. This was the predators, 2010. This was the 2010 one Robert Rodriguez produced. That is, I really enjoyed that one as well. Mm -hmm. 
Walter Goggins is I like in that it. Movie. Yeah, Walton Goggins. You got Adrian Brody. You've got um, Hope for Grace. Right. Who else is a lot? Danny Trejo's in there. A lot of good people. That guy. Um, ah, what's his name? And they've got, Ma- it, it's a fun premise where they- Mashara Lassa Ali? God, I'm butchering no, his Mahershala. name. Mahershala. Mahershala Ali. I love that actor too. Like that film to me had also a great premise. Spoiler alert, they drop, you know, warriors human, onto a planet. Yeah, various human warriors from, from all sorts of different, you know, like you get a mercenary, you get a cartel guy, you get a serial killer. Yakuza. Yeah, Yakuza. Serial killer. Yeah. Uh, you know, like a Navy SEAL kind of thing. Yeah, and they're all like, uh, why Alice are we Braga, all here? Alice Braga is a, a, like a Mossad sniper. She's like an Israeli uh, soldier, I think. So something. great. Yeah. I mean, they're, it, that one is just so fantastic because they're like, let's make a dream team of American murderers. Or, yeah, uh, like American, global, of a human. Yeah, human, global human murderers. And then they, it's like a, a yeah. game preserve for predators. And now, Lawrence Fishburne is there too. They've got like, he's, he's the survivor who's been hiding out. Oh, yes. I, I, I'm not going to say it's perfect, but what I liked about it is they had their own Disneyland. And that's, I have to figure out how they will take this and make it into an attraction at a Disney theme park. Mm. Now that they own this, a yeah. Predator paintball game experience, <laughs> like they're doing that thing with Star Wars where you go stay on a cruise ship. Yeah, the Galactic Cruiser right. or whatever. Now Star that I'm a shareholder, I have a lot, you understand, Jay Trading, I have a lot of influence sure. at Disney. My, my Disney Jay Trade is doing yeah, very yeah. well. Chapik on the phone. So I, I was, um, I got a call with Chapik next week because yeah, I may yeah. increase my position here and I want to let him know uh, what my thoughts were. Yeah. Uh, you know, he, he, he talks to the big shareholders. Sure. So Chapik and I, what's what I'm going to pitch him on is, hey, let's get a, a little bit of a more adult fare. You go to Disney, uh, Epcot, whatever. Right. You get dropped right. into basically you know predator and you have to fight your way out and you have to fight predators and it's like full contact stuff you know like you do one where it's like paintball <laughs> yeah. you do another one where it's like at mixed martial arts whatever it just becomes like a really cool i think concept, if you could figure out an immersive predator installation people would be into. So i mean the conventional good. wisdom with this franchise and i think the reason this went directly to streaming okay let's talk about the business of it yeah start right. there the the Traditionally, we haven't thought of Predator. It's a it's a well-known franchise among action and sci-fi fans, but it's it's never been a blockbuster franchise in the way Terminator is or Jurassic Park. It's it's not on that level. And so I think that's probably what held Disney back. But I personally feel like this movie would have played gangbusters in a theater. I would have gone. Word of mouth, I, I think, went would have to been all very of them. strong. And I feel like we're in this weird time theatrically now where the pandemic, being out of theaters for many years, it's opened people up a little bit more to seeing different kinds of stuff. And it's brought mm. back this real desire for throwback, like not non-ironic, like meat and potatoes, like Top Gun Maverick, Elvis style movies. Give me like a nice tent pole. Give me a nice 1980s, like, uh, you know, Rain Man right. or Top Gun. Like, let's just go with something simple storytelling, yeah. great performances. A great aesthetic, uh, maybe some great dialogue, uh, maybe some, you know, realistic action sequences that are not, you know, Transformers so blurry I can't understand them. And I, yeah. I don't need you to make it into a giant, you know, social justice. Uh, I, I don't need a big complicated I'm message. I'm not saying the woke stuff. I'm just saying like the... Yeah, I feel like like so many movies are aimed at it's trying to it's trying to serve everybody. It's like five right. quadrants at once. It's a heist. It's a caper. It's a comedy. It's action. It's this. It's that. We've got The Rock is in it and, and, and Kevin Hart and Ryan Reynolds and we're packing, you know, and it's like every yes. movie's trying to be Fast and Furious. And I like Fast and Furious, but 
I think that uh, like we're, we are starting to see people are turning back to more classic conventional kind of movie fare. That's not so tongue in cheek. That's not so self-aware and post, 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 post ironic. And I think yes. Prey, or perhaps even cynical, you know, right. Like, exactly. Exactly. Cynical is the right word for it. And I think, the, you know, that's what Top Gun Maverick hit so well, which is why I think people are going back four or five times. And I, think I want to see it again. I would literally I was talking to Jeffrey yeah. Katzenberg. Uh, to name drop, oh and I and I said, uh, Jeff, you know, like we, I, I, anytime I see him, I say, tell me about films, you know, because like you know he he worked sure. at uh, Paramount with Bob Evans, right. like he, he was he was there at Gulf Western days, yeah. And so we're talking, and he he's always like, wow, you really understand a lot of film, like, you, well, why aren't you in the movie industry? I was like, ah, it's always my like backup career. I said, um, you know, what 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 do you like? What do you like? He's like, I, I've seen Top Gun three times in theaters. I'm like, it's that good? He's like, it's a perfect film. And I was like, I I was like, okay, so. We were at some social. I was like, "Hey, after this, you want to go see Top Gun?" Four times? I said, "I would," <laughs> and I said, "I can," but <laughs> but I went to see it. Amazing, yeah. It's just and I think the thing I've missed about filmmaking, and I listen, I don't want to make this about the woke social justice stuff, but that keeps coming up. And I think one of the reasons it, it's coming up um, is well, one, it's I guess it's a great for clicks, like we talked about. But I do think people were overthinking movies. I came from an era, you came from an era where there was an auteur whether it was Tarantino, whether it was Kubrick, whether it was Scorsese, who's the woman who did Hurt Locker, uh, love Catherine her film, Stranger, Catherine Bigelow, like Bigelow has a point of view. She sure. states her point of view. It's her, you know, it's her point of view. You there's no doubt that's a Catherine Bigelow film, right? And you can identify it as such. And I, I think there's like some committee or overthinking like, oh, we have to, like you're saying, appease this audience, or we have to hit yeah. this note, or this oh, is sure. what's in the zeitgeist right now. And I, I just want to see a film that's free of that. I felt this film was free of that until I went on social media. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So there are definitely movies where like there's a movie that's on on Peacock right now called They Slash Them that John Logan did who wrote Gladiator. He wrote and directed. Oh, this. my favorite film. Yeah. Kevin Bacon is in it. He played Kevin Bacon plays a counselor at a gay conversion camp and it's a slasher movie. So all the counselors start getting one by one. Somebody's picking people off at this gay conversion camp in the woods. And okay. that is a movie that feels very specifically like they took these social issues and these things people are discussing a lot on Twitter about gender and, you know, like about, you know, acceptance and tolerance, all, all of these various topics. And yes. they put it in the context of the horror movie. So that right. happens. But I think... So often, terms like woke or they're putting in social issues, it just means the star of this action movie happens to be a lady or happens or to be an indigenous woman. Yeah. Yes. Or, and, and that's not woke or what. That's just a movie and the character in the movie is from a group of people. That's not, that's not woke. That's just this life. Is, exactly. I think people were stretching to make some connection here that wasn't there. We all know that if you were to make a list of the top 25 warriors, people you would not want to get in one-on-one -on -one combat with, Native American, you know, on a horse with bows and arrows, like these were fierce warriors. They, so, somebody pointed this out. I think it was an actual, like uh, a, a retired Marine I was talking yeah. to on, uh, on social media. They were pointing out, if you started your military training at age five or 10, right. and someone else started at 17, it doesn't. Like a lot of other factors aren't going to matter. You're going to beat up that person. Like you're yes. going to just know a lot more and be a lot more skilled and have a lot more hours 
of practice. So somebody like Naru, the star of Prey, who's been in the woods her whole life learning how to throw that yes, axe. Dealing with bears and mountain lions right. and like every Dutch predator you can imagine. This, yeah, Schwarzenegger from the original Predator, and he probably grew up in the suburbs. He was playing, yeah. you know, T-ball during that time. <laughs> it's a pretty, it's a pretty great observation. It's really important for founders to understand what SOC 2 compliance is. Basically, if you're a SaaS or services company that stores customer data in the cloud, you need to be SOC 2 verified from a third party so you can close major customers. It's really simple. If you're not SOC 2 compliant, you can't close big deals. But SOC 2 verification can be brutal. The process is tedious, it's time consuming, and it can be very, very expensive. But now there's Vanta. Vanta software makes it much easier to get and renew your SOC 2. Vanta customers, on average, on average, Vanta customers are SOC 2 compliant in just two to four weeks. Compare that with three to five months without Vanta. And they partner with over two dozen audit firms who have been trained to file SOC 2 reports directly within Vanta. And congratulations to our friend Christina and the team over at Vanta for raising their $110 million Series B. What an amazing company. I was able to put a little bet in there. I invested in the company myself. Here's the best part. Vanta is going to give you $1,000 off. Get $1,000 off at vanta.com slash twist. That's vanta, V-A-N-T-A dot com slash twist for $1,000 off your SOC 2. All right. And so we'll do a little spoiler alert here. But I mean, it's a predator um, movie. You know what? It's, it's a predator movie. So obviously <laughs> there's going to be a fight at the end. And Human as in all the predator. other predator movies, the predator will be defeated by one human, but all the other humans uh, in all likelihood yeah, are not going to fare as well. a group of humans and then they all get picked off and then there's one survivor in the end. The, yeah. the Dutch Spoiler one. alert for the slasher films, that's how those work too. <laughs> they always, there's always a final sir, lone survivor and they're yes. the, the hero. Sometimes too. I just rewatched Jaws. Yeah, uh, right. That's, I literally rewatched Jaws and it's just that great scene when where um, Brody and Hooper both get out of that one alive. Yeah. Well, when, yeah, when he comes up from this, you know, his, uh, you know, scuba diving and he looks over and right. he sees the police commissioner or whatever and <laughs> they laugh and Brody. Yeah, Brody. Brody. Uh, it's such a great film, by the way. Oh my God, one of the greatest of all time. I mean, if you have not seen Jaws in the last 10 or 20 years, like there's no other film to watch. It is, I think it might be like, when we talk about an auteur like Spielberg, like did he do a better film than Jaws? I don't know. Like, it's up there. It's up there. It's I mean, so I, perfect. I, like Close Encounters, I think Raiders of the Lost Ark. He was on, okay, a, Raiders, he was on an yeah. insane run in the late 70s. Pretty great run. Like an insane, no, almost unprecedented. But See, this is, I think, the opportunity that I'm going to talk to Chapik about is let auteurs pursue their vision. We do the opposite right now. I mean, what's fascinating is what happens now is you get a Chloe Zhao who comes out and blows people away with like two or three straight incredible very personal. She did The Rider. Then she did Nomadland. She's winning Oscars. And then what do we do? We throw her all this money to come make a Marvel movie. And she, I, I like Eternals. She did a good job, I think, of, I marrying, Eternals, yes. of marrying her style with the house style of the studio she came into and yeah. this franchise she came into. But like, why are we doing that? Like, we should let the Chloe Zhao's of the world make Chloe Zhao films. Like, I mean, if they wanted to, like I, mean, I know Tarantino I, I, wants to do a Star Trek to make film. What they want, right? Yeah. yeah, but Tarantino wants to do a Star Trek film, right? But I think what that, people have to learn that's not going to happen. It doesn't look no. like. But I was really hoping to see that. Well, here's the thing. This is what they have to realize. This audience of streamers is different. They uh, are going to be more open-minded, and the threshold to go to a theater is different than the threshold to watch the first ten minutes of something. And you've, you're already bought in. You've already paid your ten buck ticket to get Hulu or whatever. 
So they can take a little more chances. What do you think the budget was of Predator? Because I, I'm sorry, Prey, right. the Predator film. Um, and then we'll get to. I mean, I would say, yeah, it was, you know, like 50 million or something. That was my like guess. I, I was going to say 50. We'll look it 40, up. 40, 40, 50. I mean, I don't think they've said publicly yeah. exactly what it is. So we're all guessing. But so no, I mean, I, that's, that's the idea with a Predator film. It's like if you could, that was the whole Rodriguez thing when they did Predators was, look, bring, come to Austin. We'll film it in Troublemaker Studios in my backyard with all mm. my setups already in place. You know, it's where he made the Spy Kids films and the Machete films mm. and Sin City. Uh, and so, you know, it, it was it was plug and play. Like, come here, we'll do it on my, you know, studio with my equipment. We, we could drop the actors into any environment here, you mm. know, whatever. And, uh, and so, yeah, if you can control the cost, that's how you can make money on a Predator film because they're not going to make a billion globally. It's not so, a huge franchise in China the way that, you know, Fast and Furious is. This is, this is my theory. Uh, they should be doing more of this. Let the auteurs have at it. And then... You know, like for the people who were complaining, like uh, this, a girl can't be at a predator. You know, this is a movie and there, yes, it might be a one in a th- hundred chance, but you have to also realize this is one thing I think people miss is the predators do not like to come out and simply launch their rockets and just kill everybody. They like to mix it up. They like to fight. So they actually let their guard down a bit. And I believe they will pick their weapon style based on the opponent. And so this is just a theory I have because they like the fight so much. They're not going to just walk into every situation and just drop their most explosive weapon. They have like really advanced weapons. They're flying from other galaxies. Like they could just nuke the entire planet, which they do. I think when they're done with some of them, yeah, that's not the thrill for them. So they will ratchet their, you know, approach to a, uh, a competitor to their ability. And I think the predator in this, again, spoiler, let their guard down a bit. And just wanted to have a little fun, you know? There's been some debate online about this Predator and is he a young, is this maybe like his first mission? Oh, that would this be is nice, like a yes. training? And I think, I think there's, the implication is there that, and also a lot of the more hardcore fans than me have noticed that this Predator doesn't have as many like notches or in his braids. Like a lot of them have uh, a lot of decoration yes. in their headdress and this one does not indicating- That would have been something good. A lack good. of trophies, a lack mm. of experience. And so- uh, I think it's meant to mirror his opponent, like the Predator and, yes. and Naru are both rookies who are sort of yes. getting a feel for what a hunt is all about. They're both going through their trial. That's right. obviously what's happening. Yes. That's what I was trying to get at. Yes. And, uh, although I didn't say it as eloquently. So, because he fights a dog. Like, right. And he's working his way up to, or yeah, the they. He fights I mean, a dog. Yeah, a Predator yeah. fights a dog. He could have just used all the, you know, guns and lasers and everything else he had. But, he, you know, he, he literally fights the dog. So I think there's some sort of this ritual thing. But you don't have to overthink this, folks. The film is great. The aesthetic is great. And all um, Predator films, are there. it's never about a human being punches a Predator to death. They're stronger no. than we are. It's always about the human has to use their wit. Like, Arnold starts out, first of all, he's Arnold. And he right. starts out with, like, this huge arsenal of weapons and in the end it's a log and mud and arrows and it always becomes about your wit it's it's a battle of wits not strength yeah anyway it's it's a great film i can't wait to watch it with my 12 year old i do like that we have some films with uh you know female leads that are strong and awesome why wouldn't we uh you know so anybody who's different you know like we've we've had so many young white dudes beat a predator well this is like now the professor x casting of um 
Giancarlo chicken, Esposito. Carlos with the Chicken King. What do they call him on Better Call Saul? Well, they call Gus him the Fring, Chicken King. Uh, Gus Fring. But they call him the Hermanos. Yeah, yeah, the but they chicken call, king, because he owns less They call him the chicken Ron. king. Yeah. I just love that. What's like Salamanca calls him the chicken king or something, you know, casting him as Professor X. And I was like- Still rumor. We don't know for sure. Right. He definitely but has I, met, he says he's met with yeah, Bybee and them. Marvel, but we don't know I was know like, that's the perfect casting. Brilliant. I mean, if we can't get, obviously, uh, what's his name to come back? Yeah. Um, Stewart has. But, I love he, Patrick Stewart, but he's, you know, he's, he's had, had his, Patrick Stewart back. I mean, he's, he's still alive. His, he, we've, we've had the, the Stewart era. I'm ready for someone new. You're ready for something new? Okay. All right. I, yeah, so, I'm all I'm all for recasting. I, I love the old X Men. Listen, it's no 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 fault to Hugh Jackman. Although they're great, but I'm I'm ready for some new X Men. You're ready for recasting years. the whole thing. Wow, interesting. Twenty years. That's time. That's a generation. Okay. Let's do it. All right. Sounds good. All right, everybody on the phone today is Open Phones founder Darina Kulia. Welcome to the program, Darina. Thanks, Jason. Great to be here. What about the situation where you have? you know, a phone number that's a common number. So customer support number, or maybe you wanted people to just be able to call you and generally talk to the sales team. How do you handle that when you have a, a group number, a shared number? That's actually one of the super unique things about the way we've built OpenPhone is that we allow you to to have a shared number for your team. First of all, when you call into that shared number, you can set round robin if, if that's applicable or by default, everyone's phone would ring. The first person to pick it up will be able to have a Ooh, call. I like that for customer support. Wow. Exactly, exactly. And also if if I am on a call with a customer, I don't want to be interrupted. There are other people who can, who can pick up new calls coming in. But I also really think what's very cool is that this workflow works as well for text messages. And not only can you just like share responsibility for responding to text but you can also use this as a training exercise because the way that it works is that if i am a customer support rep there is a text message from a customer i don't know how to answer i can actually tag my teammates privately on that conversation and uh. get help and say hey is this okay to say or how would you respond okay everybody twist listeners can get 20 percent off any plan for their first six months at open phone just go to openphone.com slash twist if you got an existing number they'll put it right over for free head to openphone.com slash twist today for 20 percent off all right so let's just talk about disney's blowout quarter sure i'll just give you the results and then get your comments so q3 revenue 21.5 billion uh that's up 26 percent year over year when you're in that 20 30 percent growth year over year that's high growth in the stock market and that's a great thing media and entertainment 14.1 billion Parks experiences and products, 7.4 billion. I would rather see products taken out from that. I want to know what the merch actually does because I think that's like a great way for them to add revenue. Disney direct-to-consumer streaming segment generated 5 billion of revenue with 1 billion of operational loss. No big deal. Uh, they're investing in a lot of content there, but 5 so billion is a big Star number. Star Wars and Marvel shows aren't cheap, folks. Yeah. Q3 net income around 1.5 billion, 34% larger profits year over year. So they increased the uh, profits. Q3 free cash flow was negative 317 million. Last year, they were cash flow positive 466 million. Again, those numbers are so de minimis that I just look at them as rounding errors given, you know, the, the big swings they're making right here. And what's at play? Uh, they attribute its higher cost of cash flow to, quote, higher spending for film and television content. No, no surprise there. They got 13 billion in cash and equivalents. They got around... 46 billion in debt. Um, and uh, you can assume they're probably using that intelligently to build their libraries and parks and stuff like that. So let's get into Disney streaming numbers. That's where the the party is. Uh, Disney plus global subs, 152.1 million up 31% Lon. Huge. What do we attribute that to? 
I mean, I think we've, you know, we've, we've basically been saying, first of all, they're, they're aggressively expanding internationally. They're doing it quickly. They're breaking into all of these markets and they, because of all of the stuff that they own, they have an easier time than a lot of other companies. They can integrate with Star Plus in countries where they already have Star Plus and with other sort of systems that they already own. They've got Hulu in the U.S. So uh, they're able to do that quickly and get in a lot of new markets right away. Uh, so that's definitely driving it. And also, if you are aware of the top five brands in entertainment, you're aware of Disney, you know, like there's yes. not really much you can do. People want to see Star Wars shows. They want to see Marvel shows. They want to see Pixar. They want to see Disney animated musicals. And even if you don't care about all that stuff, it's a good chance you care about one or two of those things. And then if you add in Hulu and st- originals like Prey, originals like Hulu originals, and then the addition of FX and its library to Hulu had a huge impact, I think, on the overall. Hulu before was like a, you know, you could take it or leave it kind of service. I feel like they had some good stuff. Obviously, like Only Murders in the Building, a big hit for Hulu right now. But the addition of FX, so you get the Fargos, the Reservation Dogs, the Bear, all of this other very high quality, like premium content that they've been making and the library. So you get the Americans and, you know, all, all those classic FX shows. That's a huge bump. I think. So here we go. I think this uh, plays into my Ortor uh, concept. The bear. They took a chance on that, right? Uh, yeah, well, right. It's like it's the you know, guy this from is Shameless. Bear. Uh, yeah. and, and it's it's Christopher Storer, the creator. I mean, he's written on some other shows, but not a marquee name, not a Shonda Rhimes or a Tyler Perry or a Ryan yeah. Murphy level guy. And yeah, they just, you know. they. T- you know what this is? I think Netflix dropped their playbook and Disney picked it up. Because remember, we were talking like this about Netflix a couple of years ago. We're like, oh, this orange is the new black. It's very like yeah. different and feels yes. different. Well, Netflix and, in the uh, early days did do a good job of, of coming up with these sort of reasonably scaled, compact sort of shows. Even the early Marvel Netflix shows. Yes. Whole, whole episodes that Daredevil. were very like street level, like a few actors yeah. in a few locations. And now everything is Sandman and Lock and Key and Rings of Power and these massive scale shows. There is something about, you know, taking some chances with some adult fare that could spread virally. I mean, the last thing I can remember on Netflix that I felt like, well, this feels like a Netflix show. This feels like, you know, uh, something really bespoke or personal was um, uh, Queen's Gambit. And I was like, you know, that you would talk to about with other adults, like, other adults at a dinner party say, hey, did you see the bear? Oh, Ozark fits in there too for yeah, me. I like, I like, I mean, there's good stuff. I like the Sandman's really good. I've been really enjoying that. I feel like Netflix's problem is almost not even that they're not making good things people would like, but they're making so much and they're ah. not, they're not really marketing stuff. They're, they're Netflix marketing is when you show up to Netflix.com or you load yep. up the Netflix app, we're going to put a thing in front of you that we think you're going to like. But it's not hmm, like, let's get the word out to the general public about this show. Like season three of Lock and Key, which is a big show, graphic novel adaptation. Joe Hill, Stephen King's son wrote it. People don't have no idea the show exists. It's from Carlton Cuse. I, I did not. You're, I literally have no idea it's what you're Carlton Cuse who produced Bates Motel and Lost and Meredith Avril. It's got a huge, it's got the, the uh, Amelia Jones from Coda stars in it. All right. So we're back to the indigestion problem. And, you know. What does your brand stand for? Right. For and, me. And like Hulu, they're dropping millions on that show and nobody knows about it. I think the Hulu brand is a sleeper. Um, I think Disney to me says, okay, kids. Hulu says to me, teenagers, adults. And so I know what to do. Like if I want to watch something that I is a little more adult in theme, 
great, I fire up Hulu. And I'm now I'm now finding myself going to the Hulu originals tab and saying, this is going to be as good as the bear and as good as uh, the shield maybe or as good as uh, dope sick. I'm like literally looking Are you forward. watching reservation dogs. It's true. I haven't. Fantastic. Uh, so it's on Hulu. It's in season two. Now you could catch uh, up easily 30 minute episodes. It's great. Yeah, I'll definitely jump into it. Taika Waititi um, uh, created Hulu created. TV at 46.2 million up 8% year over year. The only problem I have with Hulu is, you know, I have two homes now. And when I go from one home to the other, if I'm using an Apple TV, it says, would you like to reset your home? You can do this four times a year. If I use the phone or I use the iPad, they're like, well, we know you're gonna be on the move. So we don't track the IP. And I'm literally like, Oh, God, do I reset this? And when's my next trip? And then do I do I have to get a second account? Or can I just give you five bucks for the second home? So for whoever's running Hulu with this, I, I understand you want to make up sure a second profile. I guess I have I to maybe get a family plan or something, but I got the bundle. But I think it's a little already, too confusing. I think you already get up to like three or four if you're paying for Hulu. I think uh -huh, you I get am. a few profiles with it. So I got to I got to maybe set up a second so profile. They really make it hard to understand. And then when you're at that place you it's not ideal because then your two profiles will be different. So Ugh. that might not remember you watched the bear at I that house, that. but you wouldn't have all these re-login problems. First world problem. You know yeah. when you get really upset that the streaming service forgets what episode you're on. Which yeah, which of your homes you're in, yeah. Yeah, that's when you pitch <laughs> yourself and say like, "Okay, I'll deal with it. I'll I'll yeah. read the synopsis and figure out what show I'm in." That's when you have reach peak television like you can't even remember if you watched it like i was i started watching better call saul again to catch up and i realized wait a second i've already seen these episodes i just yeah, don't remember them i've, I've done this before it's very hard yeah. what, very what hard. is that called when you were in a series you got serious amnesia season amnesia yeah i'm sure the you germans have a word for it the germans definitely have three <laughs> yeah. words for it um hulu 46.2 million subs eight percent year over year hulu is the sleeper i think yeah uh, I total agree. subs uh 221 million i left out espn they acquired the nhl rights before last season had a ton of games on espn plus maybe that explains the fact that they had 53 percent year over year they said espn plus and espn was a dog 22.8 million so you start putting all these together 221 million netflix 220.6 paid subs last quarter the flip has happened Disney and all their assets with subs now has 500,000 more subs than Netflix. I told you it happened and it's happened. So we don't actually know, or I don't know, Lon, if Disney is counting or like I'm a Hulu bundle. Do I get counted as a Disney plus a Hulu? If you have ESPN? the bundle, you're counted as one subscriber. You don't get oh. one person counted as three, but they are pooling all of these services together in one metric. Like the mm -hmm. D direct to consumer DTC is the new number. Got it. Okay. Which is well, all so of your services together, but they're putting themselves up against Netflix, which only has it's just Netflix. There's no. It's yeah. like also I if you predicted. have Netflix Junior or whatever, it's just Netflix. Yes. I am now, but I think that's an intellectually correct because as a business and an investor in businesses, you, you you all you care about is the bottom line, how many subs you got, right? And the flip has happened. And as it of only this took quarter, three years. I think most people thought it would take more than three years I for a company it. to surpass. I knew Netflix. it. It was obvious to me, plain as day. Uh, Netflix's lead is gone. 220.6 million paid subs last quarter for Netflix. Total subs for Disney's collection to 221.1. 500,000 more. The gap will continue. People also, can keep you got to remember, too, uh, at this point, I mean, Netflix has launched in basically every country it can easily launch. Yes. There are a few big countries that still you know no 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 netflix in china but that's like Great that point. may never happen 
they're Disney's starting to hit the there. Neck. Yes. All these other companies still have a ways to grow. Paramount Plus still launching a bunch yes. around the world. Peacock still launching a bunch around the world. So we mm-hmm, may see mm-hmm. these numbers are still very much in flux is what I'm trying yes. to say. And I think Netflix has a natural audience, right? It, it, it has a certain sure. type of content and, and Disney has a, a wider group of uh, assets. And I think uh, Warner Brothers Discovery also has a wider group of assets. We made that J trade. It's been a disaster for me down 20% since I made the trade, <laughs> uh, but I'm in it for the long haul. Yeah. And we talked about all their different problems over there while they, you know, Zaslav cleans up this mess, but Zaslav also my guy. Um, although I don't agree with some of the content things, I understand he's, he's being a little cutthroat. They have 92.1 million subs between HBO, which is like your cable subscription, uh, yes, HBO Max HBO and cable, Discovery Plus. Right, right. All that's bundled together. So Disney has passed Netflix and uh, if you consider, consider it across all of them. And I mean, you know, like a lot of them have that natural advantage over Netflix of they can they could fall back on these massive libraries. I mean, Zaslav has the option. He's cutting shows from HBO Max. He's like, vinyl, only ran one season. I don't want to pay the actors their residuals. Just pull it. I mean, imagine the luxury of having so much content like archived. You could just pick and choose what you want to feature this month. And, mm. you know, Netflix is not drawing on a pre-existing catalog. If they want an old show, they got to license it. Otherwise, yes. they got to make it themselves. So this is the challenge. Netflix yeah. does work for hire. They buy everything. You get paid supposedly more money. But I, I think that has now come back to the mean. And you just, they pay you. You get no back end. No back end at Netflix. Right. right. That's still the, the case here. So that's the challenge for Hollywood. And all, all of this may change. There was that big arbitration case that the WGA brought against Netflix last month. I don't know how closely you've been following this. I didn't tell me. The, the author of Bird Box uh, ah. claimed that Netflix had underpaid him significantly uh, on his residuals. And he disagreed with the entire way that Netflix has calculated how much it pays out to writers mm. in residuals. The WGA... Uh, filed, you know, this arbitration suit, the judge sided with the WGA. So Netflix now on the hook for many tens of millions, it's like 40 million, you know, it's like maybe 25 million or something like that. It back payments to hundreds of writers who they had cheated out of some of what they were owed. Fantastic. Yeah, I like it. I mean, I I, it's fine for them if they want to try to do the work for hire thing. But I can tell you, I just came up against this because I had done a reality TV show pilot with NBC when a major production house, I don't know, five, six years ago and never made it on air. And I had all this back end, I had rights to the format in other countries. So if they did this reality TV format in Australia, I, I, I would be the executive producer, I get 15k per episode or 10k yeah. per episode. It was awesome. And they're like, <laughs> Yeah, if you hit all of a sudden, you're in 20 countries. Yeah, like, uh, who wants to be a millionaire or something? Or Project Runway. Overnight, yeah. All of a sudden, you're, you're getting like, whatever it is, you know, yeah. per season, you know, they do 20 episodes, all of a sudden, you got to check 20 times 15. And, you know, it's yeah. up lot. You're, you're uh, the Gordon Ramsay model. That's exactly. exactly. It. Yeah. And so that I just got contacted by another uh, reality TV operation, again, one of the top ones, I wouldn't say which. Um, and I'm in negotiations with them right now. Uh, and some other people have started you know, knocking on my door, I think a lot because of all in has become so popular. And well, so and reality shows are, it's the perfect, it's what everybody wants, because it's cheap exactly. to produce, and, and you grab people, everybody who watches one episode watches the whole thing. And I bring an audience with me, I have I already have a built in audience after decades of doing this stuff. And I have even more credibility than I did five years ago. And I'm, you know, okay on air, you know, I'm getting better. Uh, so they were like, all these things you got in your last deal no longer exist. So like, all of a sudden, the 
I was like, I want this, this, that I just said, just give me, I told my attorney who did the last time, just the same thing is fine with me. You know, like I, I think mm -hmm. we negotiate a great deal. Just tell them we want them to match the last deal. They're like, that doesn't exist for us or for anybody. You don't get these rights like you're yeah. talking about. It's over. And so it's really interesting, like um, with the talent. And then they're just like, well, what if the talent just negotiates their deal directly if it goes to a streamer with the streamer? So if they were to sell it to Netflix or Amazon, then my representation would say, okay, yeah, you got the production house. You have your deal with them. Here's your deal with Jcow. So it's really interesting. There was a, a long read about this. You may want to look up uh, about oh. Chris Jenner and how Chris Jenner moved the Kardashians to Hulu, which was the same, the same thing. There was, it was really two entities needed to move. There was Ryan Seacrest Productions, yes. which made keeping up with the Kardashians for E and was now going to have to move their whole operation over to this Hulu show. But then there was the Kardashian Jenner family, which was a totally separate talent negotiation. Yeah, which makes sense to me. Uh, that makes total well, sense. Right. To me. I mean, that's the, you know, they're, they're the show, like the, the people who make the show, you need them to make the show. But we all know why people are tuning in. It's Courtney and Chloe and Kim. Yeah. So here's the back of the envelope, Matt. This is where it gets super interesting. Disney Plus had 152 million paying uh, an average of 435 per month last quarter. So cheap. This means Disney Plus revenue for the quarter was almost 2 billion by itself. Um, if you divide Disney Plus quarterly revenue by three, uh, you get 661.6 million in MRR, monthly reoccurring revenue, like we would talk about a, 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 an internet company like uh, Slack or something. So Disney Plus MRR last quarter, 661 million. Keep that in mind, meaning Disney's ARR last quarter was almost 8 billion because you times that number times 12, obviously. For reference, Netflix had 2.6 billion in MRR last quarter and 31.8 billion of ARR. That's right. Netflix's MRR and their AR is currently over four times larger than Disney. You have to ask, why is that? Well, Netflix's subscribers base is only 31% larger than Disney Plus. Now we're talking about Disney Plus, not the Hulus and ESPNs. Right. Yeah. So how is all that possible? It's obvious. Netflix charges a lot more money. They keep raising prices. Netflix global uh, ARPU, average revenue per user, that's another fancy term from tech, was $12 last quarter. Whereas Disney's ARPU was only $4.35. So Netflix is charging 2.7 times more than Disney on average, and they have 70 million more subs. This is Disney Plus heads up against Netflix. Quick lesson for founders, if you have pricing power, you kind of want to use that. And Disney came out very cheap out of the gate. I think I paid 60 bucks for the year or something. Yeah. I don't know. Already, the, they announced uh, yesterday that is now changing. So yes. the baseline Disney Plus price is going to remain the same but you're going to get ads now. And if you want an ad-free experience, you're going to have to pay $3 more per month. So they are okay. starting. I mean, obviously, they were they were undercutting the cost to get as many people to sign up yes. and get obsessed with their shows as possible. And they feel like now, if you're already, you've been in Disney Plus for a few you ain't, years. You ain't unsubscribing from Andor after you watch right. Obi-Wan. You're, you're, you're enjoying your Marvel and your Star Wars shows. Your kids are focused on, their, their, they expect new Pixar and Disney movies every month. You're locked in. You're not going to get rid of it now. So they can start to raise the prices and serve you ads. Disney's going to double the price. I'm telling you right now. I'm going to talk to Chapik next week as uh, you mm -hmm. know, putting that J trade on. I, I think he's going to be hardcore. He's going to double the price over time. Um, and it'll it's be well worth it. Keep, just like Netflix. Yeah. I mean, they're all just like they're Netflix. gonna as you get more and more into it, and they they feel like yep. people are getting more addicted to the content. They can keep jacking up the price. Yeah, maybe you give people some back end residuals. I, I I was talking to one of the Star Wars people, and would say which one, and I was like, they need to give you like they need to give you equity. Like when your show's on, it's such a big show. 
Uh, actually, I'll just say this. I was talking to John Favreau, and I was talking about, talking about The Mandalorian season one. I said, listen, if you come back for season two or whatever, he said, oh, I'm taping it right now. Let him go back to set tomorrow. I said, you, you need, your people need to negotiate that when your show lands, whatever the increase in subs is, you get the first month. Because you're the reason that people are subscribing. <laughs> so they get 10 million new subs. Avro uh, is like running the Star Wars universe at this point. They need can, to back up the brain structure. And and Filoni, if I was, yeah, like they, whatever here's what they I'm want. Doing. Here's what I'm doing. I'm Zaslov. I'm going right to Favreau. And I'm saying, whatever your deal is with Disney, when it's over, I'm gonna, I'll give you the DC universe. Uh, here's the other IP we have, carte blanche. And we're going to give you kickers and back ends that will make you a billionaire. We want to own Favreau Inc. That's what I would do if I'm Zaslav. I would shake the guy, I mean, Favreau listen, free. It, I, I, would not, I would not doubt John Favreau. After he, he, he launched the MCU, he's turning around Star Wars. It's a, it's a crazy track record. What would he do point. with, D, with uh, DC? I mean, come on. These DC characters I mean, that's what, are that's amazing. That's what Zaslav said. He said he's going to find a Feige and they're going to do a Marvel You don't need DC. Feige. He you made, got he him made already. DC pretty mad. There was just an article in Hollywood Reporter the other day about DC films did not appreciate <laughs> having Batgirl canceled and being told they haven't been focused on quality. They, that did that's not go why Zaslav well. is the guy you want to back. He's a wartime well. CEO. He's rattling the cage of HBO Max versus HBO production people. He's going to rattle their shake the cage uh, for the DC folks. Hey, you should cancel this Ezra Miller flash. <laughs> you think you should cancel the flash because of yeah, his just, behavior? I, I don't think you want to. Did, did you see that article the other day that it was, is he having an addiction problem? Is he mentally ill? Like this is a behavior pattern. That's I don't know what's going on with them. Uh, by the way, Ezra Miller, uh, 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 they them. Uh, I don't know what's going on with them. But uh, it, they, they, they're definitely un unstable. It's an unstable pattern of behavior where crimes in different states with different Honestly, children. I think there's 10 actors you could swap out. I think he's kind of like Spider-Man. I, you yeah, know, I would, I, I love Toby. He's my favorite. Uh, but I enjoyed the other two and I'll see the films equally. Right. Uh, I, I, I don't, I don't feel like they're a huge yeah. draw. Replace them. At this point, well, the, the movie's done. The movie, the, the big news story the other day was... During this Ezra Miller crime spree, they apparently interrupted their crime spree to go to set and do reshoots on The Flash. Oh yeah, yeah. Very perplexing. If you're on this crime, Wait. you're evading the authorities. He's evading you're, the authorities and making yeah, fun of them on he, his Instagram. Yeah, I saw the headline. Like looking for him in these, these children he's absconded with, and he's they're moving from state to state or whatever. But you know, so I, I, at this point, it's just like you don't need the negative press associated with this crime spree. And I, we all want to see a, a, a Flash movie with Michael. Keaton's Batman, but it hardly feels worth it at this point. You know, I, I'm going to take the, I'm gonna take the other side of the argument. Huh? I'm going to take the other side of the argument. I think that we can, uh, in our minds, when something like this happens, we can separate an artist losing their mind and going crazy and doing horrible things from the art produced. I can, at least when I watch a film. And I, I can too. I'm not saying this would ruin my enjoyment of a Flash film. I'm saying if you're David Zaslav and you're HBO Max and you're looking, or a, you're Warner Brothers Discovery and you're looking at this purely from a pragmatic business, it's another year. That movie doesn't come out till June. <laughs> it's another year of this kind of press, unless you're just like, I, I, I wash my hands of it. This would be the power move for him. I would say, we're after you've got all the reshoots done, you got it locked up. Then I'm saying, for the sake of the rest of the cast and the crew that put so much effort into this film. We're going to release it, but we are opening up casting for a new Flash. 
uh, and yeah, this will be his final That's going to happen regardless, I think. That's but I think making that statement up front would be very powerful. Now, I do want to point out here, fair play. They're saying the Batgirl film isn't terrible, but it's not great. It's hard to I'm know. sorry, was the Batgirl on a crime spree in her real life? No, Leslie Grace, fine, upstanding citizen. <laughs> as far so as I now know, you're Leslie left Grace to wonder, great. now my mind wanders, right? And when your mind wanders, you, you fill it in sometimes with like, you know, maybe, you know, uh, uh, something that's not true, but that is a little more cynical, dark interpretation of this, which is like, okay, is there a double standard here? Like, why is oh, that film wow. being canceled? And you're this not one the not being canceled? One, you're not the first one to suggest this either. Because there was also a uh, a Latina fronted Supergirl film that has been put in turn around. And, mm. and Zaslav has a history of some not so great, semi insensitive comments. His board is very white. So there are definitely mm. a lot of suggestions on the internet. I'm not saying any of this is the reasoning yeah, behind that any is, of these but decisions, but you do want to be aware of how it looks and how you're what you're yes. presenting to the public. And backing this film with this apparent criminal, it, it does, it reflects negatively on every other decision you make, no matter yes. what the reasoning is or the motive Correct. behind it. Correct. Exactly. Correct. And the fact that Michael Keaton, I think, is in both for cameos. Yes. He he filmed he filmed scenes for both Batgirl. So and this is kind Flash. of a bummer because I kind of want to see that because Michael Keaton's my guy. Of course, I we love want to see Michael Keaton back as Batman. Ah, they need to. I, I, I'm sticking with my prediction that he reverses the Batgirl decision. I think he's going to reverse it. I think, I think gonna be we'll coming. see it in some form or another down yes. the road. They'll do a Justice League thing Snyder with it. And we'll, right, something, we'll eventually yeah. get to see it on HBO Max or something. Here's the... I There were the initial reports that it, it got disappointing uh, test screenings or whatever. Like, I, I don't know if I buy it. I... I it looks every every thing we've we've seen from it so far looks pretty good. Brendan Fraser is your bad guy. The Bad Boys for Life guys directing. Eh, it sounds like they they had something worth releasing. All right. So any strategies for Zaslav uh, besides mine for stealing Favreau? If you're if you're advising him, which would be a really great idea, <laughs> who would you steal? Who would you? Ooh, what would be ooh. your? You got somebody for the Flash? What would be your advice to Zaslav? Our guy. You've already got Casey Bloys running HBO, who's amazing. I don't think you need to do anything about him. I think I think you do need. I don't know if Walter Hamada, who's the guy running DC Films, I don't know if he's your guy. I I, I think some questionable. I don't always agree with his perspective. I feel like that's the that's the job you want to give to someone new. I I, I know that this is a crazy uh, perspective. Let's hear it. I kind of feel like Greg Berlanti would be an interesting guy to promote. He's the guy that produces all the Arrowverse shows for CW. And look, I get that we don't all love all the Arrowverse shows for CW, but they're, they are what they are because of the limitations, the budget constraints and right. who they're being made and they're for loved. and what they're being made for. They are beloved. And, and they have an arc and they're thoughtful in how they put all these you you, the uni the, they're universe creators over there, correct? Exactly. It's it's a it's a franchise of shows that he created that all interact with one another with this big cast of people that he sold the public on and he turned many of them into celebrities. I mean, a lot of those people are sort of semi-famous now because of their CW superhero shows. And like, you know, you're, you're Grant Gustin on The Flash. He's got Tyler Hoechlin as his Superman. Uh, and I think they've done a, a you know, Robbie Amell is, um, or Stephen Amell is uh, Arrow. I think they've done a really admirable job of launching with 
very limited resources over there. You know there who they got to nail? They got to nail the Green Lantern. I feel like Green Lantern. There is an HBO Max Green Lantern show that they're working on right now. Green Lantern and the Lantern Corps. And Berlanti, is, I believe, is working on it. I think he's one of okay. the guys who's Here's on the it. Here's the thing. The Green Lantern is very underrated as a series, as a character. It's uh, it's very nuanced. There's a, there's a lot of lanterns around the universe. It, it's got a lot of great themes in it. Um, I think to me what makes it so appealing is you could procedural it. Uh, like you could do a Green Lantern cop show because they're basically yes. space cops. Yeah, and, they're, they're there to c- create law and order and to protect right. people. And yes, and, and I think a lot of other comic book shows, they lend themselves to these like long arcs and big complicated mm. stories. And Green Lantern is the perfect episode of the week. Problem on this planet, Lantern's we gotta go. go figure it out. Yeah, that would be great. That would be great. I mean, also the villain set in DC is unbelievable. So, and we I mean, barely scratched the surface. They, we, Lex we've Luthor, never done a Superman incredible. film without Lex Luthor. You got the Joker. You got Lex Luthor. Where's my brain? The Riddler. You got. Uh, I mean, the Legion uh, of Doom. Yeah, we, like, we've. I mean, we've really barely. Where's the Legion of? I mean, they did. If you can't nail the Legion of Doom, <laughs> we just which barely scratched the surface. Mixaplex. Uh, yeah. Who is the? All well, those Sinestro. Cartoons. We got to see Mark Strong as Sinestro in the Green Lantern movie, but it was yeah. just set up for a sequel that never happened, where he'd become yeah. the villain Sinestro. Yes. Gorilla Grodd. Uh, so oh, many. yeah, Gorilla, yeah. And then Captain who is the Cold. Frankenstein guy? Oh, Solomon Grundy. Solomon Grundy. Like, you got, you got all these great villains. Tuss. I can't believe there's wanna... ever been a Superman uh, Brainiac story. Yeah, Brainiac's and then you have the... Black Manta in... Um... Yeah, Bla- Yaya Abdul-Mateen was, uh, was a great Black That was Manta great. They, yeah. I think they did pretty well with him, right? Black Manta was okay in that. Yeah, he'll be back. He's back in yeah. Aquaman too. Good villain. Great Perfect. villain, like really good look, good aesthetics. Yeah, I like that uh, they, they brought in the weird saucer helmet that he has. The saucer helmet with the tubes in it. Yeah, it's like really yeah, evocative really of like some, you know, turn of the century around. and the lasers. I mean, it's really good. Like I, that's, if they got the Legion of Doom, the formation of the Legion, because they did kind of. Well, that's what Snyder was going to do. Like if yes. you, it, at the end of, of Justice League, you get that teaser where Deathstroke shows up on Lex Luthor's yacht. Yes. And they're like, well, we should form our own league. And like, well, that's yes. obviously what they're setting up. But then they never God, even that forgot to keep great. Going. The Joker and Lex Luthor. Hoo-fa. Hoo-fa. Uh, and, and that would be really interesting if they could figure out who their singular Joker is for this. Well, now universe. we've got, yeah, Barry Keegan in the Pattinson movies. But yep. then uh, Joaquin is coming back with Lady Gaga for Joker 2. I mean, if they could lock them in. And then somehow weave the best of the Justice League and the best of the Todd Phillips universe. I mean, they could, that's the thing is you could do, people act like it's a complicated thing to bring all these characters together. The flimsiest of excuses is all you need. People don't really care. They're like, ah, portal to a yeah, new it's not like somebody's going to walk out of the film and be like, this doesn't have continuity. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm like leaving. to see their favorite characters together. I don't think they're thinking about it. I mean, Joaquin it Phoenix. I don't know if that Joaquin Joker really meshes with the rest of the DC No, the aesthetic's completely different. Totally but different. But I'm, I'm willing to screen test it. That's what I'm saying. I'm willing to screen <laughs> test it. I, I would like to see him interact with Robert Patterson's Batman or, sure. you know, Ben Affleck's, whatever it is, Michael Keaton's. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine Michael Keaton and Joaquin Phoenix in a scene together? I think that's what, there was a point where they were trying to set something like this up where they were going to have the flash open up this hole in the DC multiverse. And then you could bring in all these other legacy characters. And I think the, the pandemic and the, the Ezra Miller-ness and 
a bunch of mm. other stuff happened that just kind of interrupted that uh. midstream. And now we're sort of dealing with the fall. So where you need an iron hand at the wheel who just says, this is what we're doing. Here's the five-year plan. I mean, that's, you know, that's what they're doing at Marvel. It's like, here's the five-year plan and it's on a spreadsheet and you can look at it and it's on a chart and that, then that, then that. And you know that Feige's got the next phase already. I mean, Secret Wars, can you imagine if they pull that off? Like, I mean, how many hours long does Secret Wars need to be if you got Fantastic Four, X-Men, and Avengers? No, no, X-Men. And Defenders? We don't know what the plan is still. <laughs> There's no, they've announced, we know Phase 6 starts with Fantastic Four and ends with Secret Wars. And we know Kamala Khan, who they introduced in Ms. Marvel, is a mutant. So there are mutants, but, and they're talking to Giancarlo Esposito about maybe being Professor X. So all indications, but I don't, I mean, I personally think the smarter plan would be you don't open with an X-Men movie. You do a Gambit movie and you do a Wolverine movie. Yes. And you do a Storm movie and then you do an X-Men. You know, you do it like yes. they're, they're, they're their own Avengers. Like they did with the Avengers at Iron Man, Hulk. Sell people on them. They never did that in the old. They always tried to do the whole team. And then you get like two scenes with Cyclops and a scene with Jean Grey and a scene with Beast. And it's like, no, 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 no. I want I want a Cyclops and Jean Grey movie and yes. then bring them into the Avengers or yeah. the X. Well, when they did, they did do that with Wolverine. They understood that character was so but strong. But after we'd already after. seen him in a bunch of team up movies, then they were like, OK, spin him off. But I'm like, no, no, you just open it. And it's about a guy in Canada named Logan. Yeah. At that time. The concept of there being a market for, you know, oh, 10 yeah, superhero they, 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 films a year didn't exist. They're they, like, we could do one of these every two years. Yeah, but they we, knew this, Spider-Man and they knew Yeah, uh, well, we, I don't know if we, we can't release our X-Men the same year as a Spider-Man film. Like, that's literally how they were thinking. Sony and Fox yeah. and Marvel are like, oh, I don't know if Even we want to compete. Years after that, you know, like, Marvel had to go to Paramount hat in hand and be like, please help us make our Captain America movie. And Paramount was like, Captain America? Who gives a crap? Get out of my yeah, office. It's old. All right, listen, everybody, there's been another amazing This Week in Streaming on Thursdays here at This Week in Startups. We have Lon on great insights. As always, follow at Lon's. That's it. And if you have a question for what you should watch tonight, ask Lon. This is what I want you all to do is you go on Twitter and you say, Lon, <laughs> hey, at Lon's. Oh, man. What should I watch tonight? He, and you just tell him three things you like. He'll Jeez. tell you two things you'll love. You tell him three things you like, he's going to tell you two things you love. Ask Lon, at Lon's on Twitter, L-O-N-S. Start it up. Let's start barraging and invading oh his Twitter shit. Now you're screwed. Now you're yeah, going to flood it. it's over. All right, everybody. Up next, Molly is going to interview the CEO of a startup called Ephemeral. The company is cool. Basically, they've developed an ink-like solution for temporary tattoos that are extremely high quality, uh, but they fade away in about a year. That sounds like a great idea. Because how many people get a tattoo when they're on a vacation and maybe they've had a couple of cocktails? Okay, maybe you need ephemeral. Okay, great interview. Stick with us. Jeff Leo is the CEO of Ephemeral. Previously was a VP at Casper and a senior manager at Tesla. And I bring that up primarily because Jeff, A, welcome to the show. And B, what is it about those two experiences that led you to ephemeral tattoos? <laughs> uh, well, thanks for having me. Thanks for the opportunity. Uh, it's funny you ask, you know, I come from this uh, Chinese American family where everyone was an engineer or uh, supposed to be a doctor. And I ended up being a car salesman, a mattress salesman, and now a tattoo salesman. Uh, and I know oftentimes it doesn't seem too obvious, but I think the through line for me is each of those brands prior to Ephemeral and at Ephemeral, uh, both all had visions that really transcended the products themselves. Tesla on the surface is a car company, but really it's about sustainability. 
Casper is a mattress company, but really it's about wellness. And here at Ephemeral, yes, it's tattoos, but what we're really trying to unlock is self-expression. Um, do you have any right now? I feel like I might have gotten a glimpse. Oh, yeah. So um, I have 18 ephemeral tattoos. Some are um, parts of my body. I can't actually show you. Yeah. Uh, yep. Well, I guess I could show you, but probably would be inappropriate. <laughs> um, but yeah, all ephemeral tattoos, not a single permanent tattoo. Wow. And so then, well, okay, we should back up. What does ephemeral do? And like, has this ever existed before? I mean, this is sort of like the idea of the henna tattoo taken to infinity. Yeah. Um, so what we've created at Ephemeral is the world's first made-to-fade tattoo designed to last 9 to 15 months, naturally disappears at the end of that time frame. And it's applied like a real tattoo with a tattoo needle, tattoo machine, and a tattoo artist. Uh, we are truly a first, uh, first of our kind. It took us about seven years of research and development um, out of NYU to actually create what we have today and 50 formulations and hundreds of tattoo trials before we were able to actually bring ephemeral tattoo to market. Um, prior to us, there has been only painful and effective expensive laser removal or temporary mm -hmm. tattoo stickers um, that last maybe a couple of days, maybe a couple of weeks and to exactly your point, henna as well. Yeah. Um, what is the cost? I mean, is it similar to because it sounds like the process is exactly the same as getting a tattoo? Does it cost the same as getting a tattoo? Yeah. So the other um, element of ephemeral tattoo, in addition to creating this made to fade proprietary ink is we've also decided to launch our own ephemeral tattoo studios. We hire traditional tattoo artists to work with us either full time or part time. And really, just like the rest of the industry, the price your tattoo that price you're paying for your tattoo really is the service. It's really the artistry. Mm -hmm. It's really the craft and time. Um, I think a big distinction about ephemeral versus a traditional tattoo experience, though, is the amount of investment we've made in the actual experience. Um, anyone who has a permanent tattoo or shop tried to shop for a permanent tattoo will talk about the inconsistencies uh, in studio to studio, um, how intimidating they might be. Um, also, oftentimes, unfortunately, how artists may not be that customer friendly or customer centric. And we really tried to flip all that on its head. And we felt it was really important to introduce our product through our own studios uh, to continue making tattoo wearing more inviting and welcoming. Where do you have studios? Our first studio launched in 2021 in uh, Brooklyn. And we mm -hmm. have since launched three studios, uh, second in LA, third in San Francisco, fourth in Atlanta. And we have uh, two more locations planned over the next three months uh, in the U.S. Um, so you raised, it looks like, $20 million almost a year ago today. Uh, and then this funding came after Ephemeral blew up on TikTok. What is the pitch to investors in terms of the, the total, you know, potential here, the market? Yeah. the You know, I think on the outside looking in, especially for investors, tattoos seem kind of like a part of fringe culture, um, perhaps niche. Uh, my view and the team's view here is that tattoos are really a manifestation of something that's much deeper and universal, which is this is desire to take control of your identity, really self-express. And when I think about it, you know, most of our decisions as consumers are just manifestations of this. Your choice in glasses, peril. Yeah. It's why sneakers, you know, it went from this high utility product to now having uh, sneaker heads and people collecting hundreds of them. It's why sunglasses... Uh, we might have one that matches every look. And we really see tattoos as becoming the predominant form of self-expression, competing with those other existing forms. 
Um, and so when we think about the opportunity, it's automatically, uh, dramatically expanding the number of people who can wear a tattoo. Now anyone and everyone can wear one. And right. then dramatically increasing the frequency that you can wear a tattoo. So perhaps who you are when you're 18 will change when you're 30 and might change again when you're 50. Um, and, you know, really ephemeral is trying to unlock that uh, for all, all audiences, both in the US and globally. So how long do they last? So they're designed to last nine to 15 months. Uh, that variance is just due to um, a lot of things that are out of our control, which is predominantly your body, your immune system, mm -hmm. your skin mm -hmm. physiology. So, uh, for example, my tattoos tend to last a little bit longer than 15 months. My wife, who has six ephemeral tattoos, she tends to last a little bit between eight to 12 months. Uh, we joke it's probably because she's healthier than me, but it, <laughs> it comes down to a lot of other other uh, variables as well. So, um, why why immune system? Like, does your body come and sort of attack this ink and try to get rid of it? Yeah, it's a great question. So, to explain how ephemeral ink works, uh, it's probably useful for me to talk a bit about how permanent ink works and actually what makes permanent ink um, itself so unique. So, whenever uh, someone receives a permanent tattoo, the ink has to be applied into the dermis, which is the layer of skin below the epidermis. The reason why that has to happen is because the epidermis actually will replace itself every couple of weeks, which is why a temporary tattoo can only last for such a short period of time. Once the ink actually is applied to the dermis, all those ink particles, they're hydrophobic, so they end up actually attracting to each other and aggregate into particle sizes that are too large for your body's immune system to attack and remove. Mm -hmm. um, and so when we were set, setting out trying to create ephemeral tattoo, we had to ask ourselves, how do we mimic that aggregation, but also ensure something can become effectively small enough to be removed by our immune system. And so we used a combination of dye and bioabsorbable bio polymers to create that initial particle. They lump up together, but because the polymers all have these degradation rates, they basically mm -hmm. start to just break down and shrink, letting the particles become small enough for your body to effectively remove. How long did it take? It took a while, you said, right? Like seven years to develop this technology? Yeah. So the founders all met NYU, two out of three are PhD chemical engineers. Um, and they became really obsessed with this question uh, of, you know, why hasn't anyone actually created a tattoo that could just naturally disappear? I want to interject here and ask you, did any of those people also have existing tattoos that they really regret? Uh, so the inspiration came from one of the founders, Dr. Brennell Pierre's uh, student. So Dr. Pierre was a, a adjunct professor and he had a student uh, who comes from a very similar background as my own where he got a tattoo and uh, it couldn't and he his parents found out and yep. forced him to go remove it. And half, oh, yeah, wow. multiple sessions later, lost the money. It still hadn't faded away. And, you know, that's kind of where the question question was sparked. Um, I but, knew regret had to be involved somewhere. Yeah, hundred yep, percent. And, yep. and I'd also say, you know, for the founders, you know, it was personally important because, you know, uh, they all come from first generation or immigrant households where, you know, kind of taking control of your identity or being individualistic wasn't really celebrated or appropriate. Um, you know, Dr. Pierre comes to the Caribbean. Uh, Dr. Shaw comes from India. Uh, Joshua Sakai comes from a, a Jewish family out of Long Island. Uh, and all three just kind of felt tattoos were out of reach because they were effectively permanent. Wow. Um, and so, yes, it, it, the, the idea came in 2014. It took a few years to even really get started into testing because one of the first priorities for the brand was to really develop a safe product. So tattoos are actually not an FDA regulated product, but uh, the team felt it was important to uh, really kind of raise the bar on safety. So 
they started, they spent the first two to three years researching um, ingredients and materials, I should say, that individually were FDA approved before mm-hmm. they started to do actual testing, uh, which began uh, between 2017 and 2018. Um, and again, it took 50, 50 formulations to get to a, a version of the ink we have today. Yeah, I can definitely see why it would be important to to go that route. Because of course, the first question you think is, wait, your body's breaking this down and effectively ingesting it. Could it make you sick? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, our view is, uh, if we are successful, uh, ultimately, tattoo wearing will become ubiquitous, everyone and anyone will be wearing a tattoo. And we knew that if we were going to become a household name, become a brand, become a product that was uh, global, that uh, we had to be leaders in uh, in terms of safety. And, um, you know, I, our view is eventually, the FDA will probably start to regulate the tattoo industry. Um, and uh, we just wanted to be ahead of any yeah. uh, potential pushes in that direction. What is the available product now? It looks like all your tattoos are black. Is there, are there colors? Is it all black ink right now? Like what's the, how yeah, complex can I get in terms of my full back dragon? <laughs> yeah. uh, so today your full back dragon would be black. Uh, we focused on black because that's the most popular color. It's uh, necessary for any kind of tattoo design with outlines. Um, and we are also, uh, it's easy to kind of Assumed getting to black is a pretty easy endeavor, but we, we are constantly iterating on the vibrancy, how deep that black is. And we still feel like there's opportunities to make it um, even better. But we also have begun developing um, and testing colors. Uh, and we are focused on developing a red ink next because that is actually, uh, it's going to be necessary for your dragon. It's going to be necessary for a rose tattoo. Um, it's the second the most popular. Heart that says mom, yeah, right? Exactly. I know. Uh-huh. <laughs> I got you. Yep. <laughs> you know, it's, um, uh, yeah, I was going to say as a, as a, because you said that I, it's a funny anecdote that I like to share. You know, earlier I mentioned my mom, um, uh, well, I forget if I did mention this. My mom growing up always said to me, if I got a tattoo, I'd never get a real job. Um, my, my acts of rebellion again was being, becoming a car salesman, but, uh, you know, funny enough, she actually came and got a rose tattoo with us last summer. Uh, You're kidding. Yeah. Oh, and now she likes is, to show it off, show it off to everyone that she can. That is that she really can. heartwarming. <laughs> um, okay. Now talk to me about the fading and the fading process. Like yep. as it fades, does it look kind of faded? Yeah, so there's two two things we think about when it comes to fade. One is consistency of the lines, the saturation of the lines, and then also the the change in vibrancy. When mm-hmm. it comes to lines, right, and the actual put different put more specifically, we want to make sure that as a tattoo fades, that the integrity of the design is consistent. So if it's a rose on day one, it still looks like a rose even as it fades. That comes down to uh, our artists and their ability to apply a tattoo consistently with with good saturation. Um, and so that's why it's important for us to hire great artists. And we also do work with our artists um, on a daily basis to always improve on technique, you know, because a big part of the proposition we want to create in the industry is one of continuous improvement and, and development of tattoo best practices. So that's yeah. how we focus on that. On the other side of vibrancy, um, that's where a lot of our ongoing iteration is. Our dream is to get to a tattoo that is vibrant for a majority of the fade time. And then uh, faded for a minority of that time. Today, mm-hmm. uh, it's uh, more or less linear, although you know, kind of the way it fades technically is happens in kind of peaks, um, has s- steep slopes sometimes. But mm-hmm. the best way to understand as a consumer is that it's a linear, linear fade, so equally vibrant um, as it is equally not vibrant. Yep. Gotcha. Um, I want to go back to the safety question because I just got a note from a producer about how I guess the EU is going to ban 
colored ink tattoos, like this safety question just gets more and more interesting and puts you in a position where if you can develop an FDA approved, you know, way safer colored tattoo ink, all of a sudden you've leapfrogged the pack in a lot of different ways, it seems like. That's absolutely right. And we've been keeping an eye on the EU developments, which actually started 10 years ago. Uh, there was legislation written in 10 years ago uh, mm. to start to study and understand the uh, tattoo industry. And we really do see that as um, a leading indicator of what eventually will happen here in the US um, and definitely is top of mind. And what the EU realizes, what we learned early on, is that there are actually a lot of really unsafe materials used in permanent tattoo inks. To achieve the colors you see in permanent tattoo inks, sometimes you have to be using uh, metal metallic materials, me metallic materials that um, definitely your lymphatic system can't really absorb or, or uh, expunge. Uh, so that's part of why we haven't launched colors yet as an example, because we have been mostly spending our time researching materials. Um, yeah. And red, as an example, is actually the hardest color to create because uh, most traditional inks use metals and reds. Fascinating. See, you did become like a tiny bit of a doctor. I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> exactly. That's what I tell my parents at the, at the yeah. Thanksgiving table. Exactly. <laughs> and then I guess the only other question I have for you is the, is about pain. Like it's not, you know, getting a tattoo is not a comfortable process, obviously. And you're effectively asking people to go through that not just one time, but like every year and a half or so. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think pain is definitely a consideration, especially if you're first time getting a tattoo. And I have to be honest, the first time I got into a tattoo chair, I was really, really nervous. Um, and I, I guess it sounds a little bit odd to say, but there is and a lot of tattoo wearers will kind of highlight this. But after you get multiple tattoos, there's something almost therapeutic about mm -hmm. the act of the machine. And um, it almost kind of ends up becoming numbing, all right, at a certain point. Um, I will say my wife doesn't notice pain as much as me. So uh, that says something about, about us. And uh, what I would say is that uh, almost everyone after their first tattoo kind of realizes the pain is perhaps less consequential than they originally anticipated. But uh, it's another reason why we felt it was important to own the experience, to own the tattoo studios, ha have artists, because we want to be able to comfort clients. We want to be able to create more trust, help reduce that anxiety, um, because we're very much empathetic of kind of what it is like to get a tattoo. And we think that's a big part of the ephemeral tattoo vision, strategy, and proposition. Yep. It's super cool. I don't know if you're a William Gibson reader, but there's a um, one in his book, The Peripheral, there's a person who has like, I'm hoping that you will expand into the nanotechnology tattoos in the future that will just like change and, you know, be be alive in your skin. Uh, yeah, that sounds awesome. I haven't I haven't read William Gibson, but I definitely will uh, be sure to check check them out. Just for that. Just for the just description for <laughs> of future tattoo art, the peripheral nails it. Amazing. <laughs> All right, Jeff, this is super cool. Where can people find can, can this is super cool. Where can people find ephemeral and you? Uh, so uh, anyone can, who's interested and curious to learn more, go to ephemeral.tattoo. Also, our Instagram handle has a ton of content, educational content uh, at ephemeral tattoo. And again, our four studios today are Brooklyn, San Francisco, Los Angeles and Atlanta. And we look forward to being in new cities uh, very soon. I mean, I'm in Oakland. I'm going to have to scamper. I'm going to have to do this, I think. Yeah, I think we're, all, time. we're all in Valencia. So that's a prime, I mean, prime of location. Of course there. you are. Love it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all right. I'll be back with my tattoo pretty soon. Can't wait Jeff, to see thank it. you. This thank is you awesome. very much. <laughs> Alex, our producer, just said matching face tats. That's like, a, that should be a part, part of the job, right? Yeah. I mean, right? Like, this is my chance to get a neck tattoo. Oh, I guess the only other thing I didn't ask you is, like, is there any scarring? Involved, I suppose that's probably skin dependent, but it could happen, right? 
Yeah, there's always a potential chance of it. Um, what I'd say, the things that you do to the, the ways that you mitigate uh, any p- risk of scarring are, are twofold. One, again, it's having um, great tattoo artists uh, mm-hmm. that don't uh, essentially go too deep into the skin. The second really is in healing. And um, unlike the traditional industry, we invest a lot of money into providing um, including uh, aftercare products with every tattoo that uh, comes through Infernal Tattoo Studio. That includes a hydrochloid patch, which basically goes on your skin, absorbs all the liquid out as it's healing. Um, that goes on for about a week. We also give you uh, moisturizer um, and uh, different sunscreen protectants and anti-itch creams. Those are all things that will help mitigate those chances of uh, really pigmentation, I should say. Uh, mm-hmm. And of course, we always advise folks on how to put SPF on and protect your tattoo while in the sun. Where do you get the artists? I know I said I was done asking questions, but I'm never no, done. Please keep like, the questions coming. When, yeah. You know, where do you recruit these tattoo artists from and, and how do they feel about, I mean, it must be like an interesting shift from being a traditional tattoo artist to being like, now I'm exploring this kind of new way of getting to maybe build a pretty long lasting relationship with the client as opposed to this like one in one out thing. Absolutely. I'm glad you asked that because there's so much, um, you know, when, when I, when I joined the team, you know, and I started to peel back the onion, I started to see an industry that just had a ton of other opportunities um, for us to make a positive impact on. And what I should say is that first and foremost, this, the existing tattoo industry is comprised of in the U S comprised of between 40 and 50,000 independent artists. Um, unfortunately, the industry, because it started um, out of a very specific subculture, is actually notorious for being exclusive to people who look a little bit different than the majority. So if you're non-male, if you're um, uh, gender fluid, uh, if you're a person of color, it's actually very hard to break into apprenticeship. It's very hard to actually uh, develop your own book of business because most uh, chairs are unavailable to you. Mm-hmm. And uh, so from day one, we really had a value of uh, diversity and inclusion. And so we really went out and, and talked a lot about that. We talked a lot about trying to create a studio experience that was welcoming, inclusive for artists, one that we would foster growth and development. Um, and that really resonated. So our artists, um, if you were to look at them, they're, they're, they're a bit younger. They're in their twenties. Um, they're very diverse. Um, and they're really as a, as a function of kind of being different in the industry, they're very open-minded to innovation. Um, they're very much looking for the next thing, the next way to push the boundaries of tattoo artistry. Um, and we predominantly kind of use social media to tell that story, to find artists. Um, and we also uh, recruit artists with a different economic proposition. So a traditional tattoo artist is paid um, on a per tattoo basis. Our artists are offered fixed income up front. Uh, hmm. We offer for those who kind of work their way up healthcare. We offer equity for all artists as well. Uh, and we really are trying to build, a, enable real careers for our, our artists. So it's less about the access to the customer, but it's really about being in a home where they can grow and develop themselves as tattoo artists. Wow. That's okay. That's very cool. I'm glad I asked about that. <laughs> now I really am done though. <laughs> All right. Awesome. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, of course. This is awesome. Okay, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to another awesome episode of This Week in Startups. Thanks for Lon for joining us. He's great. Uh, if you have guest suggestions, producers at This Week in Startups, they're always willing to hear your feedback. If you're a PR company, we don't take pitches. So don't send your uh, clients to us. Uh, but if you're a fan of the show and you have ideas, yeah, of course, we'll listen to you. Uh, and uh, tomorrow is going to be a great episode. Howard Lindzen is going to come on and insult me and talk about the craziness going on in the public markets. 
uh, and what's going on in private markets. He's really smart. He's really funny. He's really cynical. Uh, he's really old. So he's got a lot of wisdom. So uh, tune in tomorrow. This could be, you know, Howard Linz is not going to be around for that much longer. So we really want to get him on the show while we can. Uh, again, he's, he's pretty old. And of course, producer Rachel will have another OK Boomer segment for you tomorrow. Have a great Thursday, everybody. And we'll see you tomorrow.